Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me today is Dr. Robert Motley. Dr. Motley is with Lehigh Valley, the health network there, and to talk with him today about a really interesting topic, something I think you'll find very exciting, and that is the idea of natural family planning, but as I say, natural family planning in 2014 probably isn't your mom and dad's natural family planning. It's another way of looking at things that for physicians I think it's a really interesting approach. This comes on the heels of several shows we've done. We've talked about changes in attitudes towards breastfeeding. And there's a lot of, I I would say, emotional and different ways of looking at various issues. But I've heard you lecture, and I was really impressed, Dr. Motley, with how you kind of just look at things medically. You look at one approach, another approach. You're just kind of saying these are options that are out there. So tell me a little bit, first of all, about what is different now maybe than 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or even the general public's view? All right. Well, thanks very much for inviting me to join you. I did the medical term for natural family planning is called fertility awareness. Over the last 40 years, while there's been a lot of advances in women's health, very quietly there have been a half a dozen investigators who've been basically building a better mousetrap and basically other methods that are more effective and not based on a calendar, which is sort of an artificial mechanism for tracking your fertility, but are based on actually observed what we'll call biomarkers. So these are cervical secretions that are present each month as part of the fertility cycle as a woman has rising levels of estrogen and works her way toward ovulation. And then there are urinary hormone equivalents, particularly related to metabolites of LH. And as the fertile window closes, there is a rise in progesterone, which is a thermogenic hormone. And that actually can be measured by virtue of the basal body temperature. Cervical mucus is probably the primary biomarker that's observed externally. And it can be complemented or in a cross-check faction with use of either a urinary hormone indicator, which is basically a, a machine, much like a glucometer that can measure and can actually give feedback about the time of fertility. And then the basal body temperature in a normal cycle, you'll see a rise of about a half to one degree of temperature Fahrenheit, which will be a signal that the fertile window is closing. So I was interested in many of the things, points you made. And one of the big ones I thought, which I thought was very interesting, and I think our audience will be interested in is we base everything at least on the quote unquote normal woman's cycle, which is looked at as 28 days. And that may be where a lot of these so-called natural methods fell apart because not everybody, as we well know, follow normal cycles or follow normal anything for that matter. That's correct. Uh, in fact, you know, I don't know the exact percentage, but there's, there's a large minority of women who, who don't have a 28-day cycle. We have to go and kind of go back to basic physiology, but that front end prior to ovulation is the variable time. And uh, the actual, the luteal phase in a normal person typically runs somewhere between 9 and 17 days, but it's fairly fixed for a particular woman. So investigators who on the basis of the models have done the observations that one might see on a day-to-day basis, in one case with the Creighton model, its founder, Dr. Hilders, actually did a series of hormonal testing to see what those hormonal correlates were, both with estrogen and progesterone. 
and was able to plot that out. It's interesting, in the luteal phase, there's actually a biphasic rise of estrogen along with the rise in progesterone during that luteal phase. And that has a couple of purposes, one of which is actually to set up the next cycle. So what he has found, and I think this can be identified with some of the other tracking methods as well, is in some cases that part of the cycle doesn't function normally. There are not adequate rises of either estrogen or progesterone and can lead to a variety of abnormalities and symptoms that can include short cycles or tail end bleeding toward or spotting toward the end of a cycle. Even premenstrual syndrome or PMDD has been correlated with inadequate progesterone during the luteal phase. It's very fascinating the number of things that can get in the way and can even impair fertility, if not causing out-and-out infertility, certainly causing some subfertility and a lot of frustration for the women and the men who are trying to conceive. From the standpoint of those who actually are trying to avoid pregnancy, this is a blueprint that it's unique for a woman. And I think one of the nice things about this, particularly from a primary care perspective, is the natural methods actually allow for participation of the man to get more or less back in the game of shared sexual decision-making in the context of a relationship where there's a good sharing of what their goals are. And obviously, because there are no barriers that are typically employed with the natural methods that works best in a monogamous relationship because these methods do not protect against STIs. So when you're dealing with patients, and for those listening, I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Motley, and he is a family practitioner, sees a normal range of patients in all age groups as part of his practice. In fact, I, in doing some research, I noticed that you're board certified. You have an additional board certification in geriatrics, so clearly you have an knowledge and understanding of the elderly as well. So reproductive health is one part of what you do. When you have patients and you're seeing them, how do you broach this subject? Is it something you bring up as part of a conversation? Do you specifically talk with all your patients? How do you bring it up? I think I've really changed the way that I have that interview. I would say most women who are seeking family planning or contraception or women's health are coming in for a visit that's focused on that. Sometimes it can come up in another context where they may be expressing some struggles they're having relative to emotional symptoms or physical symptoms with cramping. Regardless of that, I have tended to focus primarily on tell me how you're feeling. And then beyond that, if we're really talking about whether a particular woman would be a candidate for one of the natural methods, I would say if they're having symptoms, they sometimes find it helpful to get started doing something that they can be tracking their cycle in a way that might help to explain some of what's going on. I give them a little context around that. For the context of family planning, I've zoomed out a little bit. Instead of taking a technical approach, I'm sort of taking more of a relational approach and inquiring a little bit about, so tell me a little bit about the relationship that you're in. Tell me a little bit about the quality of that relationship and sort of what your goals are. And I think through that, as a woman expresses that, I can get a sense as to whether there is at least a stage of change or a stage of readiness and motivation that would allow her and her partner to participate in learning how to chart and follow the charting and then make decisions on the basis of that. I think the analogy here is very similar to what we do when people come in and want to do behavior change, whether they want to lose weight or maybe they want to become more physically active. 
I would say a number of the women who are attracted to these methods are women who typically don't want to use a pill or don't want to put hormones in their body. They have changed their diet. They're eating organic foods. They're exercising. And so their focus is on health. And this is another dimension of how they can work that into their lifestyle. In some cases, it requires some real change. And so there's a little bit of a gut check that takes place. These are also methods that much like self-care education we would do for diabetes or any other health condition, learning to chart is a life skill. And so it's really best done by a health educator. I'm happy to say that all of the evidence-based methods have certified educators who function to either teach face-to-face or they can teach online. They can do distance. One of the methods of Billings method even has sort of a programmed curriculum that one can access online and do it on their own. I think you and I would both agree that while some folks can learn that way, it's probably a little bit more effective if they have a coach that they can check in with, get advice, talk over some nuances of what they may be experiencing. Armed with that, with those instructions, that's where the efficacy rates really are pretty good. Most of these are below 10%, and in many cases, they're equivalent to the typical use rates for an oral contraceptive. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Motley, and as you can see, we're talking about alternatives and natural family planning and other ways of looking at it. I notice you're referring to studies, and I think that may surprise some people who may not be familiar with it, but there have been a number of studies and reports looking at this in a controlled fashion. and and actually pretty well designed. Yeah, I would say most of them are cohort studies. They have had good numbers and have followed them over time. It's interesting in that most of these have been done around avoidance of pregnancy, although a couple of the models have actually done some studies looking at time to achieving pregnancy. You would understand that with an adequate understanding when the fertile window occurs, assuming all the physiology is working, people can achieve a pregnancy at an earlier stage more quickly. From an avoidance standpoint, we, as part of an academic collaborative, which we've called FACTS, the Fertility Appreciation Collaborative to Teach the System. This is rooted through the Family Medicine Education Consortium in the northeast portion of the United States. It is a collaborative of academic family medicine faculty as well as practicing clinicians, and it includes folks from the disciplines of nursing as well as medicine. We actually set out to do a systematic review which was published last year in Osteopathic Family Physician using the strength of recommendation taxonomy and found pretty good evidence. We had to define our our methodology and were able to look critically at a number of the methods that are out there and then compare them in terms of their use effectiveness, particularly against the oral contraceptives. So I would say for the most part, large cohort studies, I would say we're not at a point where we've been able to have randomized controlled trials. I think the content of this is such that it's user-directed And so it might be difficult in an RCT designed to meet the needs of the patients. And I think that's, for that reason, that's where the level of evidence stands. We only have a couple minutes left, but I do want to ask you an important question, which I think a lot of physicians in all areas of healthcare would be interested. How do you effectively counsel men and women about the cycles, cervical mucus, all these issues? Because it can get a little complicated. How do you... I'm not going to say simplify it because you want the patients to know and be actively involved, but how do you break it down so it just doesn't become overwhelming? 
That's a great question. We've actually spent some time on how to frame this conversation in the context of a short office visit. We have been able to introduce the fertility awareness methods sort of on the menu and talk about them in the context of family planning and side by side with what might be the more traditional contraceptive options. I think like many times we use sort of an algorithmic approach where you're looking at patient types. So for instance, if I have an adolescent who's not sexually active, whose main goal is to chart, we would pick a simpler method. And so there's two or three that have simpler instructions, can be learned quickly. And in fact, in the course of a reproductive lifetime, many women end up learning two or even sometimes three languages, if you will, three different models depending on what their needs are. If a woman has actual symptoms, then I might jump right to a more medical model. So that might be Creighton, or they may get started using the Symptothermal or the Marquette model, and then need either to transition or upon finding a pattern that does not look normal, start a diagnostic workup using the Creighton model and its medical applications, which are called NAPRO technology. So we use subsets, and I think the algorithm we're actually working on and hoping to roll out into some residency workshops later this year so that family physicians can become updated. We did a survey a couple years ago that found that 25% of Programs in the Northeast Quarter don't include anything about FABMs in their curriculum, and the general level of knowledge is about 40 years old. The most commonly recognized fertility awareness or NFP method was the calendar rhythm method, and we're certainly in newer territory than that. Well, Dr. Robert Motley, we have run out of time. I want to thank you for joining and sharing your insights on primary care today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com slash Primary Care Today to download the podcast and learn more on the series. Everybody, thank you very much for joining